0: Sometimes it's easy to look around and wish that you had other people's stuff. When I was a kid, it was moped. I know that sounds ridiculous, but when I was a kid growing up, our neighborhood was inundated with kids my age, and it seemed like all of them had mopeds. I even had a moped. Now, when I say moped, I mean literally moped. It had pedals, So I would leave my house, and I would go to the end of the street, and we had this nice long hill, because the only way to start this thing was to go down a hill, because you couldn't do it flat, because then you're, just, you're cycling, you're going like this, and, and here's how this thing ran. So if you know anything about motors and how stuff works, this thing was a, was a contact motor, so you had to reach back. Now, of course, I mean, see, now you know why I wore the helmet, because you're trying to ride this thing down a hill as fast as you can, and then reach back and grab a switch, Flip that switch so it made contact with the tire, which you know makes things go real fast. Made contact with the tire, and then that thing would cause the motor to kick and then and then you'd be on your way, right? We're always trying to find the perfect equilibrium. How much is too much contact on that tire before it slows it down too much, and how much is too little resistance where it doesn't move at all? But that's a whole sermon for another day. So here's the thing: so I would reach back, I would flip that switch, and I'd be going down that hill, and I'd get to the bottom and it wouldn't start. And I would find myself going back around the entire neighborhood, you know, back up the hill. I'd come down, and I'd try it again. I'd flip the switch, and it wouldn't start. And I'd come around the corner. I'd go back up. Man, I was in shape, guys. Like, you don't even know. Like, I was in shape, right? And so, like, I got up that hill, and I hit it maybe the third or fourth time, fifth time down that hill. The neighbors are all looking out going, what is he doing, right? I'd flip that switch, and it and I would cruise, man, I would cruise about 15 miles an hour through my neighborhood. I was so cool, and I'd hit that thing, yes, and I'd be riding through, and I think, man, I thought I was something. And then my friend Martin would come by, thankfully our video still still working, he would come by on his red Honda Spree. Now, guys, I can't begin to tell you. That thing was like a Ferrari in our neighborhood. When Martin went by, you looked at it, and you were like, oh, man, that thing is just... If I had that Spree, man, I'd be so cool. That thing was something... And here's the deal. If I had that spree, I'm still, guys, I'm still jealous of that thing. I think my midlife crisis is going to be safe. I'm going to buy a Honda spree. That's what I'm going to do. And if I had that thing, man, oh, I would have been something. I still look back at it and think, man, I could have been the coolest kid in that neighborhood. Now, here's the thing why I told you those two stories today. Because as we become adults, and for the kids in the room today, as you become adults, one of the dangers for you that is still true for all of us adults today is that we still look around and we still want better stuff. We still want more stuff. And we always still want someone else's stuff. This is the temptation that we all face. It is the greed and the jealousy that is somehow innate within humanity. And so I look to this day, still to this day, and look and say, man, if I just had better stuff, if I just had more stuff, if I just had somebody else's stuff, then maybe I would be happy. But we find... Is that we're not happy when we live like that. That there is a key to living content, finding joy in the things we have, in the relationships that we have, in the calling that we have. And when we find joy in being content in what God has given us, none of that other stuff ever seems to matter. And that's really the focus that we're looking at of this series, and as we enter this second week, a story that we're going to look at today, that we're going to explore today. We're going to explore a story that we find in the book of Kings. Now, first and second Kings that we find in the scriptures deals with a 400-year period of history for the Israelites, for the kingdom of Israel, for the people of Israel. This 400-year history is told in these books, and it's told uh, through a recollection, through a chronicling of the different kings that ruled during that time in the kingdom. Now, it's interesting because the whole point that they're trying to make through these two books, through the books of First and Second Kings, is that these kings are corrupt, that these kings are actually pretty terrible that they were not very good, that they were horrible, that they didn't really follow God, that they made all kinds of mistakes. And those mistakes, those things that they chose to do, the mistakes that they made, all of that led to the downfall of Israel. So this is written in a way, it's sort of looking back and saying, who is at fault for the situation that we find ourselves in today? It's the decisions of these terrible kings and the things that they chose to do. That these kings who were supposed to lead Israel, who were supposed to be the ones who follow God, oftentimes decided to follow the worst of their temptations. They often sought their own greed and riches. They often sought to to seek themselves above God's way, and it led to all kinds of disasters. And so today we come to one of those stories. And if you have a Bible, if you want to turn there, I'm still going to read it, and hopefully we can keep it on the screen, I think. Maybe? I think so, yes. We're going to go to 1 Kings, and we're going to go to chapter 1, and this is about a man named Ahab. His name is King Ahab, and he had a plot of land that he saw, and he wanted this plot of land more than anything He looked at the way that I look at that Honda spree. He looked at it the way that you look at things that you want somebody else's stuff, more stuff, better stuff, someone else's stuff. And so Ahab looks out, he sees this plot of land He says, I want that land. That land should be mine. The problem is that there was a guy named Naboth who owned that land and it had been in his family for generations. For generations, this man had owned this land. And this is a huge problem for King Ahab because he wants the land. And so Ahab and his wife Jezebel go to extreme lengths to get a hold of this land. But they end up miserable by the end of this story. And so I want to explore this today. I want to see what does this have to teach us and how does this help us with this problem that all of us have of wanting more stuff, better stuff, or someone else's stuff. So let's listen. Let's, let's, let's dig right into the story. First Kings Chapter 21, and we're going to start here in verse 2. So Ahab had already seen the land. You know this feeling. He looks at it and he says, I want that. I, I really want that land. So he goes to Naboth and he says this. Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now, this seems really weird. I gotta be honest, when you first read this story, when you open this up, it doesn't seem like Ahab really is nefarious here. He just wants this land, he's willing to pay for it, he's willing to exchange whatever he can for it, he seems to be just desiring this land and willing to pay for Naboth, whatever it's worth. But Naboth still refused. And it seems weird. It seems like a good deal when you look at it closely. It seems unwise. Maybe, maybe for some of us, it seems ridiculous. He said, I'll give you better land. He said, I'll, I'll trade you. I'll give you what it's worth. Doesn't that make sense to you? So why would he not take the king's offer. This is one of those great places when we read scripture that it, it reminds us of what we're supposed to do. If something doesn't make sense, say, that doesn't make sense. What, why, why didn't he do it? There's got to be something else going on beneath the surface. So I think we need to discover what that is. See, as we look a little bit closer at the story, we'll find that Naboth was actually just following the law. He was following the laws of the people of Israel and what those laws said about property that was passed down from generation to generation. And we find these laws in a couple different places in the scripture. So once we see that, once we recognize and see, hey, he is following some traditional laws that existed for the people of Israel, now let's find out, okay, so where do those come from and what's going on and how does that play into the purpose of the story? Now we find that, again, we find these in a couple different places, but one of those places... Is the book of numbers. Numbers is not a book that most of us go to very often. It's just a lot of sentences, a lot of censuses, a lot of numbers. It's it's one of the more boring books that you might read. But then you find how all of this starts to connect. And that's the coolest thing here. That is one of the coolest things. It's one of the reasons that I love. Uh, those huge Bible reading plans where we read through all of Scripture, if you begin to make connections and see the pieces and how all of them tie into each other, we begin to see how all of those relate to each other, how the stories all connect, and how all of that leads us to Jesus. And so this is one of those things that we're going to see today. So let's go to Numbers chapter 36. It says this, No inheritance in Israel is to pass from one tribe to another. For every Israelite shall keep the tribal inheritance of their ancestors. Again, this law didn't stand on its own. It had purpose. And this is, I think, one of the things that's really important for us to understand, not just about the Old Testament, but it helps us understand all things that we stand on in our faith, all of the foundation that we lay. That these things don't just stand on their own. That it's not, just, it's not just God saying to these people or these, the, the, the laws that they're putting in place here. It's not just them saying, hey, you know what? Let's just put a law in place that doesn't make any sense. We're just going to put it here because we just want to make people miserable. That's not the point. There's something beneath the surface that is driving what's happening here. There's something that they're trying to understand about a better way to live, a more holistic way to live in relationship with each other, in relationship with God, there's something taking place here. And this is one of the cool things that we find in a passage like this. This passage was connected to the idea of stewardship. If we look back, we see that this inheritance, this idea is all connected back to this idea of stewardship. The land then wasn't for Naboth to give or sell. It was a gift that Naboth was meant to to steward. And related to this idea then was the idea of contentment. So this land that Naboth has, that Ahab comes to and he says, Hey, I want your land. King Ahab is just ignoring this law that was in place for Israel. You would think the king would know the law. But Naboth does. I can't give you this land. This land isn't mine to give. And in essence, he's saying, and it's not yours to take. This land has been given to me, and I am a steward of this land. It's not mine to give or to sell. It's mine to use. So he's content. He has contentment about it. And this is where we see these two characters at odds. And this is where we see a choice in how we see our life and our stuff. Naboth saw everything he had as a gift from God. I have said this for the past few weeks, and I'll say it again. If there's only one thing that you take away from the message today, take this away. He saw everything that he had as a gift from God. And he wasn't even tempted to trade what he had for something more because what he had was enough. But Ahab saw everything he had as second best. So he was tempted to trade what he had for something more because what he had was never enough. And that's what greed-fueled comparison does to you. It puts you on a path for more that never satisfies. So we have these two characters. These two characters that represent very clear ways that we can live life. We can can live life with Naboth, Naboth, who says, everything I have is a gift. And everything I have is more than enough. Or we can choose to live like King Ahab, who looks and says, everything I have is second best, and everything I have will never be enough. And so we continue on in the story because clearly Ahab doesn't get the point. He doesn't learn from this. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Now listen to this. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. And then it says he goes home and he lays down. He feels sorry for himself. He lays in his bed. Probably a really nice, comfortable bed. He's the king. And how many of us have done that? Can't believe stuff I have, but I can't have that stuff. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Right? It's immature, definitely not very spiritual. Now, listen what happens next. Then it says, his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, why are you so solemn? Why won't you eat? And he answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelites, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my (laughs) vineyard. Sorry, I'm trying to imagine this story. Like, can you imagine the situation? And if you put it in our, con- in our modern context and you see what's going on, you just sort of wonder. When he's talking to her and he says, and she looks and she says, hey, what is your problem? Why are you laying in bed all upset? You're the king, what's going on? And he's like, I didn't get what I wanted. The mean man said no to me. And I'm telling you, she should have smacked him. All right? But listen what happens. Listen, listen where this goes. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. And I am with her. I am with her to this point. I'm like, yes. Is this how a king acts? Stop it. Get up. Do something. But then, no, nope, no. Nope, this, this is where we slide away from what she, listen to what she says. Then she says, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Oh, boy. So here's what happened. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's cities with him. Now, did you notice anything about that? Now, Now, listen, listen. This is those moments we have to stop. We have to look a little closer. His wife said, is this how you act as king of Israel? Get up, eat. I'll get the vineyard for you. Listen. So she wrote, letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them. So in his sulking, in the midst of his greed-fueled desire, he loses all sense of responsibility. He loses all sense of right or wrong. He just, he just completely misses it because his emotions of greed have taken over. And we've all been here before. We get on that Honda Spree and we ride it and we're like, I own it now, yes! And then we crash. Because we're in a totally different space than we probably should have been in. So she wrote letters in his name, placed them, sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth City. In those letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two, I love this, scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So Jezebel's solution to her husband's greed-fueled desire is to set Naboth up, to have accusations brought against him, accusations that carry the death penalty, and then Jezebel can give Ahab all that he desired. So we go on. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast. They seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and king. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, we get it, he's been stoned to death. She said to Ahab, get up, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, he went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. The first lesson that we see in here is when you see two scoundrels rock in a room, go the other direction. Have we not learned this? Have we not learned this from TV shows and movies and now this story? You go the other way. When you're looking around and you I'm being serious. Listen to me for a second. When you walk into a room and you go, you know what? Something does not look right about this situation. Something does not look right. I, I, I don't know that this is... This is not... Something's wrong here. And there, wasn't, there was something wrong. This was not a good situation to be in. He gets set up. Things go south. And he ends up dying. And Ahab went down and took possession of this vineyard. But he didn't get to enjoy it. Ahab's choices had consequences, and a prophet Elijah was told to share those consequences with him. So listen what happens. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Whew! I mean, Comptons, I'll explain this to my kids later. You guys explain this to your kids later. But as we see here in this passage... This isn't going to work out real well for Ahab. Do you guys get that? This is not going well. This is him looking at Ahab and saying, listen, what you've done, it has consequences. The choices that you've made are going to lead to disasters. Your unchecked greed-fueled desire will ultimately lead to pain and suffering. And I want you to see this too. His complicity in the injustice that took place, that took him to what he wanted, he's going to pay for it. So you see, it's not just the things he did. It's not just the choices he made. It's his complicity in joining up with injustice that ends up causing so much pain and suffering. It says, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. And we find passages like this all throughout scriptures of moments of repentance. And what this is trying to tell us is it changed everything for Ahab. Putting on sackcloth is a recognition that everything I have is not mine. His repentance led to an incredibly humble posture it recognized the greed and the sin that had been in his heart and guys as a result ahab experienced grace and mercy ultimately there were still consequences his family was pulled off that throne but here in this moment he does repent and he does receive incredible grace and mercy but i think god's desire is we never go down that road of regret. God's desire is that we never walk down that road. You look at this story. You think about the guilt then that Ahab lives with. The sad reality of the story of Naboth. Now listen. Listen to these words of Jesus. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. See, I I love this story of Ahab. Because I love that it shows us his repentance. I love that it shows us God's grace and mercy. But I also see in it that God doesn't want us to live like that. That this story serves as a reminder of God's grace and love and mercy, but it also shows us The result of our consequences also shows the pain and suffering that can take place. It can also show us how far our greed can take us and what it can do to our lives and the the destruction and the suffering and the pain that it can cause if we leave leave it unchecked. So Jesus looks at it and he says, be on your guard. Watch out. Guard against all kinds of greed. He says, life doesn't consist of all this stuff. Life doesn't consist of more stuff, better stuff, someone else's stuff. That's not where life is found. As Jesus would say later on, life is found within me, within my teaching. Jesus would say, come follow me and there you will experience life. See, we have this danger, this temptation within our lives. For so many of us, especially as we listen today, I know most of you and I know most of us live pretty comfortable And we have a reality within our lives that it is easy for us to think that our life is found in our stuff, that life is found in our vacations, that life is found in our homes, that life is found in our cars and our electronics and all the stuff that we can gather. And maybe for a time, in a short period, that stuff will give us the high that we desire. But it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't satisfy. And that's what Jesus says, life, real life. True life, the essence of life is not found in the stuff that you get. See, if we don't recognize it, if we don't stop it, what he's saying is that greed will short-circuit our faith and our trust in God. It'll lead us down roads of regret where we've traded everything we have for stuff we don't need. Do you hear me there? We will trade everything we have for stuff we don't need. Now, and guys, I want you to listen. Kids, I want you to listen today. These things are called the errs. Does anybody know what the errs are? Do you know what the ers are? The errs are cooler, richer, and busier. And these are the temptations that we face, the temptation to trade our relationships, our integrity, and even our faith to be cooler, richer, and busier. And somehow we think if we do more. Somehow we think if we have more, that we will be happy. But I want to tell you right now, that's never the case. You know how I know this? I know this because I've made those mistakes. We all have. As adults, this is, this is why I love that our kids with us today and learning stories like this, maybe not the dog part, but the rest of it, that they learn that life is not found in being cooler. Good, real life is not found in being richer. Life is not found in being busier. And we don't want you to make the same mistakes that we've made when we've chased those things in our lives, right? And we all have an opportunity. We all have a chance to say, today I choose a different path. See, happiness based on the errs is always out of reach. It's always just out of reach because you'll never have enough. And the person who is imprisoned by the search for more will always require more. Now, a good test for everybody here today. Because we all live different lives. We all live in different spots. We all live in different places. We're all experiencing different things. We all have different temptations. And we all have different errs that somehow are attempting us to follow them, to give up the things that we already have for more. And a good way to test this is with this question. I would be happy if... Now, I want you today, wherever you are, if you're online with us or if you're here in this space, will you join me in this exercise today? Would you look at that statement? And would you truly, deep down, allow yourself to answer that? I would be happy if. And I'm serious, I'm going to give us a minute. How are you filling that blank? today. Now, before you shout it out loud, please don't. It's for you. I want to challenge you to think about this today, because this one hit me. When I was writing the sermon, when I was putting the pieces together that go on the screen, and I put this in, and I looked at it, I would be happy man, it was a moment of conviction. It was a gut punch. It was a reality check. Because it's a reminder of where our hearts can go. If you're like me, let's be honest. You have discovered that the past 18 months that the best life is found in the things that we take for granted, right? If you really look back at the last year and a half, and you really said to yourself, where have I really found life? It's in the things that we often take for granted. So many people have told me that life not defined by the ers has been a wake-up call. I can't even get to tell you how many people have said, man, not trying to be cooler, not trying to be richer, not trying to be busier. Now, they didn't say it like that, but they said it in those ways. Not trying to chase those things has made my life so much better, but I hate to say it that I agreed with them, and then just like them, I often found myself still chasing after hers. And I look back and I say, I can't believe it. There was a lesson to be learned. I missed it. See, the temptation is for all of us to forget this lesson, and this is where our trust in Jesus steps in. We discovered last week this statement that having Jesus means having all we will ever want, all we will ever need, and all the strength to face anything that comes our way. And I want you to hear that again. And I want you to see that no matter what you put in that blank today, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm trying to make you recognize, help you recognize the need to replace that And Joe, can you put that back up? I want you to replace this today. I would be happy if. I would be happy if I was following Jesus. And I know. We said, no, no, I made a decision to follow Jesus. No, no, no. The decision to follow Jesus is an everyday decision. It is an every moment decision. It is an opportunity at every moment to say, I should have followed Jesus in that moment. What have I learned from Jesus? As I've explored the way of Jesus, what has it taught me about loving God, loving others, bringing life to my community? And we are going to find ourselves in situations where we all look around. Say, I'd be happy if I just had that. We have got to stop, and we have got to push our minds in a place where so I'd be happy if I was following Jesus. So what would happen? What would happen? What would happen if we looked around and we had those opportunities, those places where we find that greed, we find that jealousy, we find the search for earth coming into our hearts if we just stopped ourselves and said, if I just had Jesus. You know what? You can never get too much Jesus. Isn't that the coolest thing? Like, guys, I want you to hear this, our kids to hear this. You can never get too much Jesus. You can literally never run out of Jesus. Jesus is like the OS that keeps upgrading every single week. Like, you just get more Jesus. And it gets better and better and better. And everything you face, the answer is Jesus. I mean, I'm being serious. I know this sounds crazy today, but hear me. Listen to me, guys. This is what is amazing, and this is what is so incredible about the Word of God. And when I say the Word of God, I mean Jesus, who is the Word of God. That your life, everything you face, when you have fears, when you have wants, when you have desires, the answer is Jesus. And that the teaching of Jesus, you will never find it out of date. You will never find the true teaching of Jesus to be something that doesn't match up with what you're facing today. Because at the essence, at the heart of Jesus is learning to love God and love others. As my friend Kurt likes to say, it's simple. And sometimes we just need to be reminded. So when I look and I say, I need that, I say, no, I need more Jesus. Instead of that, what if I took it and instead I loved others? Others, what if I loved God? If I just had more of that in my life, man, I have never, ever felt regret by choosing Jesus instead of some of this other stuff. But there are so many times that I have looked back and I have said, why did I choose that? Why did I go after that? Why did I have that? Why did I... Why did I have that greed, that jealousy? Why did I allow that to rule my life? I don't need it. I need Jesus. So here, here's what I want to invite you to today. I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus. To find all you'll ever need, all you will ever want, and the strength to face anything that comes your way. And I want us to do it like this, an exercise that we have done over and over again in this place. I want you to put your hands out, and I want you to fill those hands with those things in your life. Close them up and imagine all the, the cool stuff, the richer stuff, the busier stuff, the things that you've, you've put and you've said, I would be happy if I just had this st- if I just had this stuff. I just had this. Now, and I want our kids to do this. Do this with me, guys. Fill those hands. You ready? Drop it all. Drop it. Let it go. Now turn those hands over in a posture of receiving. Fathers, we come to you today. We receive from you. And we receive from you all that we will ever need and all that we will ever need and all the strength we will need to have to face whatever is in front of us. Today, Father, we give ourselves, we give our church, we give our families to you, God, Because we can trust you. Because we know that you are faithful. God, we don't ask for stuff today. We ask for life that is found in the way of Jesus. God, rather than getting stuff, may we learn to be more graceful. Rather than getting more stuff, may we learn to have more mercy. Rather than having stuff, may we learn to love. God, those things, they never rust. They never fade away. And we can never have too much of them. And Father, we learn this through the life the death, the resurrection, the teaching of Jesus. And so today, Father, wherever we are, we say yes. and We choose to follow. And it is your name that we pray today. Amen.